lockdown, Leo the leak, a historic US election, possible vaccine to tackle the coronavirus, Dominic Cummings getting booted out of number 10 Downing Street, and top of all that, a hoo-ha in the Supreme Court. You're listening to A View from the Ditch, where we've been served up a feast of material. I'm James Larkin, and as always, I'm joined by William Dalton. I hope you're hungry, William. Um, yes, I, I literally am. Okay, well, we'll get to dinner later, but what about this feast? Um, well, I suppose we should start by following up on a story we we covered briefly last week. Um, the confidence motion in Leo Varadkar, uh, he survived it anyway. I'm well, I believe I it was he, he more than survived it, he thrived it, William. It was a confidence motion. Yes, that's right. And, uh, I saw that uh, Junior Minister Peter Burke described it as... Our local n- man. ...naked political opportunism uh, on the part of Sinn Féin. And that well, uh, now, yeah, we, Fine Gael wouldn't know naked political opportunism if it hit them in the eyeball, huh? Indeed. Well, I did see one uh, Twitter user, Clint Cowan, who said, "I prefer my opportunism fully clothed." <laughs> <laughs> well, thought that was uh, quite, uh, yeah, quite Jesus, uh, a well-dressed, some well-dressed political opportunism for Clint Cowan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Owen O'Brien, uh, meanwhile, said that Sinn Féin were forced to take the motion, um, saying, "Quote: If you're friends with Redker, you can get information." But it seems anyway that that uh, that that scandal has died a death. Yes, I'm but uh, but don't worry, William. There's plenty plenty more where that came from. Yes, that we there's a significant um, controversy around the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, with the Chief Justice Frank Clark suggesting that his colleague Seamus Wolf should resign, and that. I think he said it was a unanimous view among all members of the court that he had, quote, caused very significant and irreparable damage to the court. He said he seems to be, Frank Clark, taking issue more with Wolf's response. So we should say this is about the Golfgate scandal where of course. Uh, Seamus Wolf uh, attended. Unbeknownst to him, he was breaking guidelines and possibly part of a party that was breaking the law. Um, but he didn't realise there was a party in the other room that was connected to his party, uh, to be so fair. Yes, that's that's what he's saying. He, he said, another quote from Frank Clark, your statement, quote, your statement that you did not understand what you were apologising for at the time when you issued your limited apology would significantly devalue any further apology. <laughs> yeah, it was, he, it was quite an expert non-apology apology on the part of Seamus Wolfe. Mm. It was really impressive, I thought. <laughs> well, he does. He, I, he seems to be the only person associated with that event who, who hasn't resigned. Yes, and um, it's pretty impressive because, like, Phil Hogan made a very good go at not resigning. Yeah, you know, it's, it. Someone said to me during the week, uh, "It's neck and neck for the longest neck." <laughs> <laughs> you're not. You're not naming names. Of course not. He might have been a former member of Young Fianna Fáil, but who knows? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and so. On Friday night, Michal Martin 
met with opposition leaders to discuss this. Yeah, this, I find that a very interesting turn of events because that was something that was proposed by the Green Party for the coronavirus pandemic to have kind of a cross-party approach. Mm. Um, so it's the first time I've ever seen this. Yeah, well, it does happen. I think it happens informally. Of course, but this is one of the few formal occasions I've seen. Yeah, now they've come out and said there was no consensus reached. The the opposition leaders, that is. They've said that the Attorney General's advice wasn't shared with them, so they're getting their own legal advice. And that there were concerns raised about the appointment of um, of Wolf in the first place. Um, of course, he had no judicial experience. And three others were suggested who had judicial experience to Helen McEntee, um, but the cabinet weren't told about them. That's right. They put their names forward, which is really strange because you would think, or to me, again, as a non-legal expert, that you know, any time there's a Supreme Court vacancy, Supre- <laughs> like senior, of course senior judges would be putting their name forward for it. Yeah. Um, and it, you'd wonder what... Well, it's hard not to see it as a political appointment exclusively and not a technical appointment at all. Seamus Wolfe was a Fine Gael member. He was, I really? believe, yeah, according to the Indo, he was branch secretary in Dublin Bay North. I don't know whether, presumably, as a judge, he has to resign his membership of the party, but... Well, he was uh, seen celebrating with Richard Bruton when he got re-elected. Is that right? Well, there's a picture of him standing beside uh, Richard Bruton and it was captioned by RTE saying, friend of Richard Bruton, uh, Seamus Wolfe. Now, I okay. don't know if that has stand up in the Supreme Court. Well, he was a party activist in that same constituency. Oh, so wow. So, again, we come back to this, you know, the idea that judicial appointments are somehow apolitical. So maybe is, Shane Ross was onto something. Huh? Uh, well, I wouldn't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we can we could say that. Broken clock right twice a day. Throw enough shit at the wall and something stick. Huh? Fair enough. Um the other story we I think both of us wanted to talk about was this thing about government government um departments monitoring Twitter. Mm. And uh, I know or I s- assume that you were disappointed that your own Twitter account didn't come up in the report. Nor did I see an at another underscore abyss. If anyone wants to get in touch. That's William's Twitter handle. No, this is the story that the Departments of Health and Education were keeping detailed monthly logs of summaries of Twitter activity. I think the Department of Social Welfare as well. Is that right, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this was reported by the Irish Examiner, um, Aoife Moore. And, uh, yeah, they're keeping track of loads of people. I saw um, certain names like Vicky Phelan, um, Gabrielle Colleran, the one that got the most attention was um, Jurassic Arse. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he, who's a guy I think from from uh, Kells, County Mead, um, who's kind of a funny Twitter user that has kind of viral maybe tweets every may- now and again. Maybe there's someone who's bored in the office and said, "Oh yeah, Minister, this is a really important one. We got to keep track of." And they maybe they were caught. Maybe someone in the office was caught looking at the, this these memes or something. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is really important for government business. Yeah, government business. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, well, I just don't see what Jurassic Earth has to do with... Well, he does comment on current affairs. Well, there you go. Um, so. has a serious Twitter following. Does he? Uh, yeah. Um. Any uh, juicy ones followed other than Jurassic Earth? Not that I've seen. Um, uh, Blind Boy oh. is in the... These reports. Any 
explanation as to exactly why they're following them? Um, they said on on Irish activity house on Irish uh, activities committee. I don't think so. I think they they said the, the Department of Health said quote communication of public health advice plays a vital role in encouraging adherence to public health guidelines. As per WHO guidelines, the department has been actively listening to public views and concerns, etc., mm. etc. Et so that's part of the rationale they've, they've offered. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think we should probably get on to the interview. Um, today, our guest is our friend James Brady, who is an authority on arms control and international human rights and various other matters. And we're talking about the cheerful subject of nuclear weapons. Very important in the context of a U.S. election in which the previous president had uh, gotten rid of an, the Iran nuclear deal. That's right. And seemed to be stoking, you know, wars uh, left, right, and center. Yes, I, um, I, I think it's a, it's a good time to be talking about this. Yeah, I'm excited to hear from him. Um, before we go into that, though, quickly, can I say, uh, if you want to get in touch, um, we have our email address, a view from the ditch at gmail dot com, and like I said earlier, William's Twitter handle at another underscore abyss. Now for the expert James Brady, I'm looking forward to it. On the sixth of August this year, Ireland ratified the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The sixth of August was a significant date. It was the seventy fifth anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing by the Americans, and this treaty has now reached the 50 ratifications required uh, for its entry into force at the beginning of next year, I understand. So to chat about this and some other recent developments in the area of nuclear weapons proliferation, I'm very pleased to be joined by James Brady. How are you, James? I'm great, and thanks for having me on. Not at all. Thanks for coming on. So, how significant a development uh, do you think this this treaty is? I think it marks a um, a big step for uh, counter proliferation efforts by the the ratifying states, and marks, I suppose, a new era for everyone who's concerned about the threat of nuclear annihilation, which I would hope is anyone alive today. Yes, indeed. Um, and yes, well, it's something that obviously was very much on the agenda in the Cold War period, but since then things are a little bit less clear cut, I suppose, than they were then. And it's not always as high on the political agenda, would it be fair to say? I think that's exactly right. Um, the threat of nuclear weapons proliferation has been, I suppose, it it falls far down people's priority list of things that they should be concerned about when there are usually much more pressing issues in people's lives to think about when they're trying to live their lives rather than uh, the almost almost taboo nature of thinking about the absolutely catastrophic effects of uh, nuclear war would be on the people affected by it and also uh, the kind of the sort of more um, existential threat that mm. nuclear weapons pose to people. I think it's kind of, it can be framed sometimes in the same sort of fear as that people have about climate change. That nuclear weapons and climate change yeah. both represent existential threats to 
how people live their lives today. And to think of either can, can be paralyzing for a lot of people. And I can understand why people would try to avoid thinking about um, the, <laughs> the planet ending effects either yeah. would have on, uh, yeah. on them and their yes that they're, sometimes they're too big to comprehend it's funny in relation to that of course the the, the bulletin of atomic scientists are the famous um doomsday clock i think most recently they set it at 100 seconds to midnight um reflecting yes on the one hand climate crisis on the other hand some recent slightly worrying developments Mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of nuclear prol- proliferation, which I think we're going to come on to. Just before we mm-hmm. do that, though, just to come back to this tr- prohibition treaty. So one of the kind of obvious problems, um, you know, in relation to it is that none of the nuclear weapon states themselves are signing up to it. Mm-hmm. And some of them have yeah. very forcefully said they will not. Uh, mm-hmm. None of the NATO members, uh, I believe, apart from, I think Netherlands were involved in the negotiations, but then they refuse to to sign it yeah, so, so just maybe for yeah for maybe your listeners sake just to explain what the treaty for prohibiting nuclear weapons means please. is that um it forms part of a international legal regime that is attempting to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons the treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons um aims to further entrench the legal mechanisms that uh, are currently in place that will limit the ability of states to either use, transfer, develop, finance, or promote the threat of or use nuclear weapons. Um, And it currently uh, has, uh, as you say, 50 ratifying states and is going to come into force in 2021, which will mean that there will be another piece of legislation that tries to prevent the spread or use of nuclear weapons. I suppose just before through, through kind of throughout the last maybe uh, 100 years, there's been incre- like increased efforts by states to try and uh, limit and restrict the means of warfare. And we can see that in like at the early 20th century, at the start of the 20th century with the Hague regulations or with the Geneva Conventions or mm. the banning on cluster bombs and landmines or the Chemical Weapons Convention or the Biolo- Biological Weapons Convention. And that these types of mechanisms that restrict and make certain types of modes of warfare and means of warfare illegitimate and taboo with a emphasis on trying to pre- prevent the type of avoidable humanitarian catastrophes, catastrophes that can follow from uh, non, uh, that type of warfare. Mm. And, and of but course, the, nuclear weapons, sorry, are, are the one category of, of weapon of mass destruction that, that aren't subject to an international ban isn't that the case uh well with the well with the non-proliferation treaty and with mm. the tpnw those sort of mechanisms restrict uh the possibility of them being used during a war mm. okay but but uh, yeah so i just just to come back i wonder you know given that that this latest treaty that the, the nuclear weapon states themselves are you know implacably opposed to it what what do you think are the prospects for for the treaty and, and the, the movement the, the non-proliferation movement or the disarmament I, movement to be more specific i suppose i think the a major step with the tpnw is sort of downstream from the actual weapons so it 
puts prohibitions on the financing of organizations involved in the development of a nuclear weapon. So things like a state, a company that is involved in the development of nuclear weapons is going to find it harder to access uh, the type of finance and capital required to sustain them. So the type of financing that arms companies need and their access to capital with the mm. TPNW, that's going to be, make it harder for them to access finance and further restrict their ability to participate in weapons development. Okay. But would it be fair to say that in order for disarmament to happen, you know, it would require some sort of other multilateral agreements between the, the nuclear weapon states themselves on top of this? I think at the moment there is a kind of a crisis in the international and multilateral agreements that have previously been in force. Um, We recently saw the end of the Russia and the US who had both agreed to participate in the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, Mm. which during the Cold War saw huge numbers of nuclear weapons being deployed to mainland Europe uh, across land and sea with the possibility of air delivered nuclear weapons as well, as well being set in Europe. And that was with the expectation of mainland Europe being used as a theater of warfare and that yeah. the Russian nuclear forces would meet the NATO and allied forces uh, somewhere in the middle of Europe and would exchange nuclear warheads during uh, the outbreak of nuclear war in mainland Europe. And with mm. the threat of that occurring and coming to the end of the Cold War, the INF was an agreement between Russia and the US to remove some of the, well, all of the intermediate ground based nuclear weapons from Europe. So during a, a crisis, the possibility of a nuclear weapon or a nuclear exchange taking place was reduced for much of mainland Europe. Mm. Now, like, uh, sea-based nuclear weapons weren't included in that treaty. Yeah, and yeah. Russia and the US both withdrew from that treaty in I think it was 2018. Yes, um, because yeah. of allegations that Russia had deployed a nuclear weapon-capable ground-launch cruise missile to Kaliningrad, that right. like the little enclave uh, from. Yes, uh, I think it's in between Poland and Lithuania. Yeah, and. With that deployment uh, came an allegation that Russia was in breach of the INF. Mm. And if Russia was going to be in breach of the INF, then the US wasn't going to participate in it either. Um, and both both withdrew within a day of each other. And I think what mm. that signaled, that signaled an end to that bilateral agreement. Similarly, there were nuclear threats emerging from um, North Korea around the same time. and possibly with the ending of the JCPOA, uh, there was a similar level of fear uh, from the US that the, they would be left behind in the next generation of emerging nuclear threats. Yeah, so the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal, I, I want to come on to, but just on that point of sort of Russia, the Russian-American dimension, mm-hmm. it seems to me during the Cold War you had kind of a clear-cut, you know, bipolar um, dynamic. Mm-hmm. where the deterrent argument was based on 
purely on what the other side was doing. Whereas now it seems you have a kind of a multipolar situation. So um, I wonder what do you think is the, and, and the t- determinants argument is still one that, you know, is made, obviously it was made by Britain and France uh, and the United States in refusing to sign up to the, mm-hmm. the ban treaty, yeah. where, where they said deterrence has uh, kept us safe for the last 70 years. So I wonder what do you think is the status of those sorts of arguments nowadays? I think those those sorts of arguments fail right from the outset because nuclear deterrence is a is a theory and theory only up until it is proved wrong. And we have to remember that nuclear weapons have already been used in aggression when they were used against Japan. Yeah. So to premise the arguments that deterrence works, we've also seen during the last 75 years the emergence of new nuclear weapon threats around the world and that the arms race continues and is hurtling onwards as we speak. And of course there were near misses during the Cold War era, the, the, the famous Stanislav Petrov mm-hmm. incident where there was a yeah. false um, detection of, of a nuclear strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the brinksmanship is one concern but in a much more immediate sense nuclear weapons have nuclear weapon testing uh continues to kill people through to today that the people of nevada and kazakhstan both have to live their lives with a radiological scar on the landscape and it's the same within some parts of the australian outback that have been scarred with nuclear weapon testing, as well as in Algeria. That, which is where the, the French tested theirs, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that, and it's the same in French Polynesia. And the TPNW also looks to try to provide reparations to the communities most distinctly affected by nuclear weapon testing. Oh, I wasn't so, aware of that. Yeah. So the the nuclear weapons don't just exist in a in a hermetically sealed vacuum, uh, mm. not injuring anyone and will only hurt people in the future. Russian scientists were killed during a, a nuclear weapon test, uh, I think within the last 18 months or so, when a new uh, nuclear-powered cruise missile exploded during testing um, in the Arctic Circle. And that those people deserve to be protected from nuclear weapons testing as much as the intended targets of any nuclear weapon deployment. Hmm. Well, that's a really good point because they do tend to be talked about sort of purely in the abstract and to the extent that they're discussed, to the extent that disarmament is on the political agenda at all, which of course most of the time in, in the nuclear weapon states it's not. And and you saw this in, in Britain where you had, a, mm-hmm. you know, a leader of one of the major parties, Jeremy Corbyn, who previously had been, you know, a unilateralist, a member of the mm-hmm. campaign for nuclear disarmament, and this was kind of taken by the British media. It seems to me as a sign that he wasn't, um, he was unserious, you know, that that he wasn't willing to press the button. And you had the leader of the Liberal Democrats kind of insisting that she would press the button, you know. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a macabre um, phenomenon, isn't it? The in- something gleeful about the impending doom that they would uh, unleash upon the entirely innocent populations of people who would be 
destroyed during a nuclear war for the defense of in with the real with the real prospect of the deployment of a nuclear weapon means that there will be a nuclear response and that yes. for anybody to pretend that they could suggest that they would use nuclear weapons in the abstract and forget the entire populations of people within their own country that would be doomed to certain death by yeah. their own deployment of nuclear weapons is one of the most horrifying questions that could be asked during a, an electoral debate. Mm. Yeah, so it seems like, I don't know, it seems like maybe it's important to get disarmament back on the agenda in the context of a more serious discussion about what it really means and what the consequence of, of any kind of nuclear exchange would be. It is absolutely essential that people come to terms with our closest neighbour um, possesses nuclear weapons and constantly has a submarine deterrent threat at sea all of the time, ready to deploy nuclear weapons against an enemy. And should the worst come to the worst and uh, the UK be involved in a nuclear exchange, the port of Fastlane in Scotland is not far off the Irish coast. And the the people who we know in England who would be destroyed in a nuclear war, their families and our families would be most closely affected by uh, a nuclear war. Mm. And and then, of course, one of the other issues with nuclear proliferation is that it seems to be, you know, an anti, inherently anti-democratic development and that these things are built and maintained in secret and they're not really subject to democratic control or oversight what do you think about that i think the more people find out about the the plans the military have the less into the military they become mm. yeah, the, nuclear weapons are are built on legacies of colonialism the the uranium mined the the places that have had weapons tested on them None of the people who are most intimately affected by nuclear weapons development have ever, have ever had a significant say in their development. Okay. And then, of course, in terms of recent developments, you have the president-elect, it would seem, of the United States, your, your fellow Mayo man, Joe Biden, uh, has, uh -huh. has expressed his intention to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal that Trump mm -hmm. withdrew the United States from, the, the JCPOA. The, the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Yeah. Um, he said, I think, that he intends to uh, re-enter that subject to mm -hmm. Iran uh, demonstrating compliance. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because it's been... Sure. Yeah, it's been an important uh, recent issue. Um, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about what the deal meant what what were the mm -hmm. requirements uh, of iran under the deal and mm -hmm. uh, i suppose was it working prior to the american withdrawal in 2018 yeah so the jcpoa was an agreement between iran and the unp5 plus the eu to um, reduce its stockpile of enriched uranium as well as to divert some of their facilities that could have been used for a use, building a nuclear weapon and divert them into more peaceful or industrial purposes. 
and it also aimed to reduce the what's known as the breakout time. So the amount of time it would take for Iran to uh, process its stockpile of low enriched uranium through the facilities that it has, the JCPOA agreement would increase the amount of time it would take Iran to go from low enriched uranium to highly enriched uranium. And uh, yes. that highly enriched uranium is the, amount, is the type of fuel that you would use in a nuclear weapon. Uh, and they went from a period of, I think it was three months, to a period of one year. So it would take one year worth of processing uh, under the deal to manufacture enough enriched uranium to produce a nuclear weapon. So that amount of time uh, allows, if there was a protracted crisis with things were escalating between Iran and, and the US, mm. it would mean that both sides would have more time to go to diplomatic options and political options to try and walk, walk, their, walk the situation back from a crisis. Um, and to all extents and purposes, the deal that was entered into in 2015 was working effectively. It was the most thorough, ins- it had the, the most thorough inspections regime. Mm. Um, I think all the parties entered into it in good faith that there was like a clear path to verification of the ending of or the reduction of its stockpile of enriched yeah. uranium yeah. so like really extensive intrusive inspections regime and hugely frustrating for all the parties involved to see that come to an end in 2018 because of the huge amount of diplomatic work that had gone into gone into yeah. making it work yes and then of course after the americans withdrew under trump the eu i believe you know, attempted to kind of keep things going, but Iran in 2019 announced that they were no longer going to comply. Mm-hmm. Isn't, that, and isn't that right? What it, what it meant for uh, a, a lot of organizations and businesses who had um, previously been bound by the sanctions regime against Iran hmm. and with the lifting of those sanctions had begun to do business in Iran uh, yes. with the possibility of like, the flow of finance into Iran and the prospects of new trade and the normalization of relations. And that all meant that when the agreement started to collapse, it meant that deals that were halfway through being progressed, it came to a a distinct hold. And the threat of a really sort of awkward situation where banks in the European Union, who had begun to do business with uh, Iranian uh, organizations then became threatened with sanctions from the US for dealing with Iranian yes. finance and that became very difficult for the EU to figure out a diplomatic situation or a diplomatic pathway to try and bring things back into sort of normal procedures hmm. because a whole lot of whole lot of banks and individuals uh, ran the risk of becoming sanctioned from the US and in order to maintain the sort of usefulness of the agreement as well. So yeah, also also seeing like Iran engage in sort of more um, hostile behavior in the Iranian Gulf, Straits of Hormuz and mm. the type of asymmetric conflict that they had engaged in in Iraq. 
they didn't feel as bound. I, I imagine, I suspect that they didn't feel as bound by the agreement. Yes. Uh, so, do you think, given that that Biden has signaled his intent to to rejoin the agreement, that should we be optimistic about that, or are there problems that might arise? I think it'd be a very hopeful path forward uh, to try and reduce the threat of further nuclear proliferation. But we have to remember that the US still has a stockpile of thousands of nuclear warheads that it retains the use of and continuously engages in provocative and threatening behavior around the world with those nuclear weapons. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting how sort of Twitter lit up briefly during the during the diagnosis of Trump's COVID, uh, Trump's COVID diagnosis. When oh, yeah. um, there was a, I think a, an account tweeted that one of the U.S.'s nuclear command and control airplanes had taken off. I think it's a. An, I saw an, this. An, an E6, and he, he, lo, the person who had tweeted it out said, "You know, we we've Trump's got this diagnosis. We've got some clear signaling here that uh, the U.S.'s nuclear posture remains threatening and active," and it just. It just totally decontextualized that those airplanes are out there every single day <laughs> signaling to the U.S.'s nuclear ICBM fleet that remains out at sea all of the time, ready to strike anywhere in the world, and that Trump's COVID diagnosis, diagnosis are not. Those planes are going to be flying above the U.S. and above, its oce- above the oceans, communicating with them. Um, the U.S. nuclear submarine fleet, um, mm. and kind of, it, w- it was interesting to see. Sometimes, the, like for in this one instance, the the dawning on people that the nuclear threat remains present. It's there all of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think I think we have to leave it there, James. Um, but uh, thanks a million for coming on and for sharing those insights. Um, is there any kind of like social media account you'd like to plug or anything along those um, lines? You can you can follow me on Twitter uh, at some words James for um, regular comment about arms control concerns and inter- intermittently my analysis of some beautiful satellite imagery that might pop up every now and again. Excellent. Well, thanks again, James. And thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for coming in. Cheers. The sky. Strands of clouds go slowly drifting by. In the park, the dreamy bees are droning in the flowers among the trees. sun burns in the sky